Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Radio, where each week we talk to a musician, artist, author, or other creative Mississippian promoting the arts across the state. I'm your host, Melody Moody-Thordis, Arts-Based Community Development Director with the Mississippi Arts Commission. And today in the studio, I'm speaking with Mississippi artists, Sean Star Wars and Ann Campbell. Hi, guys. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having us. Of course. Well, I'd like to know um, a little bit about both of you guys. Um, and I thought we would start um, by just telling me about how you grew up. Um, I don't know if you guys are from Mississippi. Um, so, Sean, we'll start with you. Um, what was what was Sean Star Wars like uh, as a 10-year-old? Where did you grow up? Uh, I, I moved around a lot. I guess I probably lived in North Carolina when I was 10. Um, that's probably where I started to learn my love of Mountain Dew. I lived in New Bern, North Carolina, which is the birthplace of Pepsi. But um, I didn't really like to draw or anything fun like that. I probably just played football, you know, with my friends and family when I was a kid. Um, it wasn't until I got into my teens that I started playing around with drawing a little bit. And and when you were a teenager, um, did you take classes, or was it just something you were drawn to? Yeah, no, I didn't take any classes. Actually, you know, when I moved from Colorado back to Virginia, um, I got involved with skateboarding you know, when I was 14 or 15, and so that pretty much consumed my energies. Um, it didn't take long to discover that cre- that skateboarding is such a creative act that it kind of extends into other things. So most kids that are skateboarding also play guitar, they're in a band or something, they're writing little stories, poems, or whatever, uh, or they're drawing all the time, making paintings or whatever. And so that was kind of what I did just as a extension of what we were doing in skateboarding. I just started to draw a lot, and I didn't really um, think that I was any good. It just was fun. It just seemed like something that I should be doing. Right. Well, um, we'll talk about your art a little bit more later, but um, I was interested to see on your website that you actually have a skateboard um, or a few skateboards that you've actually incorporated your arts in, so kind of tying back to that original love. Yeah, exactly. It's it's been really... exciting for me last year that I've been doing a lot of this stuff with um, there's a there's a guy named Paul Schmidt who had one of the bigger skateboard companies back in the 80s and 90s called Schmidt Sticks and I was doing a workshop out in California and he just popped in just to see uh, what we were doing he wasn't a part of the workshop but uh, when he came in I was super excited because it's Paul Schmidt so um, it was just really nice that he took an interest in what we were doing, and then we've developed a friendship, and out of that friendship, we've been able to uh, work on this kind of a unique process of making skateboards, which is pretty different than the way that they're done as an industry standard these days. Wow, that's that's fascinating. So, Ann, tell me about you. Did you grow up here in Mississippi? I did. I'm from Centerville, Mississippi. Grew up in Wilkinson County. Um, have always been artistic drew all the time um, was one of the few people in our school which my graduating class was 38 so um, I was one of the few artistic people there were a couple of others but there were just a few of us that that drew and just 
I did it all the time. I went to Ole Miss and got my degree in art. I have no idea why, but I don't <laughs> think I knew what I wanted to do, and I knew I would enjoy that. So I, I, I majored in art, and but I never worked in it until I got laid off in 2005. I've sold shoes. I've sold wedding gowns. I've sold cosmetics. I've been a provider relations representative for Medicaid, and I have also... Um, was a technical writer, and that was the last thing I did, and I got laid off in 2005. And so in 2005, I got a nice severance, and I thought, I'd like to open up an art gallery. So I opened up a little art gallery on Fortification Street called Artichoke with three other ladies and soon found out that that was not what I wanted to do (laughs) because I didn't like having to go to work every day. And so after that, we shut down when they did the the construction on Fortification Street because we just thought it would interfere and it was the time to close anyway. And I started doing my art full-time there then and got to talk them into put, letting me put a studio in the Craft Center. I'm a member of the Craftsman's Guild. So I did a had a studio in the Craft Center for three years and then bought a house on Adkins and I had a studio there for three years. And now I have a studio on Court Street, uh, which I also rent out to other artists. Right. And so, that's Bottle Tree Studios? Bottle Tree Studios, that right? yes. Okay. And uh, I know you've been a member of the Craftsman's Guild for, for quite some time. Since 2006. Since 2006. Wow. So you've seen a lot of people come. Right. Uh, new <laughs> artists. My father and I both applied at the same time. My father had never done anything artistic, but he built furniture. And we so we both applied at the same time, and he got in, and I didn't. <laughs> so I was a little disappointed, but I got in the next year. <laughs> well, you know, that leads uh, me to an interesting question. I heard a little bit about your father and the work that he did with found objects. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do with found objects and, and, and what your dad did with furniture and, and how that kind of came to fruition? Yeah, my father started out making Adirondack chairs, and... Um, but then he bought this old hay fork, which I don't know if you know about a hay fork, but it's a pretty good size fork, about two feet long, and then the tines. And he decided that that would make a good seat for a chair. So he had he incorporated driftwood, shovels, crutches, whatever, and made these really awesome chairs that were just they were fascinating. I mean, they were very inspiring. And I, whoops, and I uh, decided to start making animals. I woke up one day and I had and I had bought these I was also had a booth at the Antique Mall, High Street Antique Mall and I so I was always buying things. And but it wasn't selling so I'm like, "Oh, what what can I do with this croquet set and this shoe last and a, and a roller skate?" So I made a dog with the roller skate being the the legs, the croquet mallet is the body and then the shoe last was the dog's head. And it just kind of expanded from there and I would buy weird little wooden things or stop on the side of the road and pick up whatever I saw that interested me, go to flea markets. I go to uh, use eBay a good bit. So, <laughs> And I am I will dumpster dive any day. Well, it, it, it seems to me from what you're describing that maybe working with the found objects wasn't necessarily your initial goal, but that you, you seem to have been inspired by them. Um, yes, and, my father inspired me and, um, and I, I, I get things, and then they tell me eventually what they want to be. Oh, that's wonderful. You really let the art speak through right, the I objects. I found a uh, – I'm packing up my studio for my move, and I found a lens case 
my black leather lens case, and I'm looking at it the right way, and then I turn it over, and I'm looking at it, and the little um, top pops open, and I'm like, that's a mouth. And I had a little plastic saxophone. I'm like, okay, this is a sax player. So <laughs> I haven't made him yet, but he's coming soon. Oh, I can't wait to see him. So um, as we continue down this, this journey, Sean, um, so you went to LSU, is that? For is grad that school. Right? Yeah. Okay, uh-huh. and you studied? Printmaking. Okay. Yeah. Great. And then you, you also studied graphic design at, in Savannah? Uh, at SCAD, yeah, okay. like when I was just trying to figure out what else I could do. Um, and know. that's Savannah College of Art and Design, right, correct? Exactly. Uh-huh. A great, wonderful school. Yeah, so um, so that was kind of, that was a different experience for me because I was already, you know, kind of in the workforce. I was teaching, um, you know, teaching at a high school. Uh, but uh, that was all online, you know, mm-hmm. which I thought would probably be a, uh, a benefit if I was going to go back to teaching at the collegiate level just to be really familiar with that process. It was kind of fun, but um, just another thing to do just to keep busy, you know. So you went to um, LSU to study printmaking, mm-hmm. and then is that was that did that remain your focus? Did yeah, you... well, I knew even when I was in undergrad, I actually, I'd already been, um, I wasn't a very good college student early on. And so I had found myself on uh, academic suspension. And so while I was waiting for a chance to go back to school, I took some classes at the community college. Out of skateboarding, one of the, uh, one of the most inspirational skateboarders is a guy named Neil Blender who rode for a company called Gordon and Smith, someone else that rode for that same uh, skateboard company, Chris Miller, he did all of his uh, skateboard graphics were lino cuts. So when I was in high school, I was very intrigued by that term, but because the Internet didn't exist, there's no way to find out what words meant. We didn't have encyclopedias or anything. So uh, it was a few years later when I was in college and I saw that in printmaking you made lino cuts. It's like, oh, that's that thing that I like so much that I didn't care enough to find out what it was. And so uh, after the very first one, I fell in love with it. I was like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And there's so many different types of printmaking, and and they're interesting on a lot of levels, but they're just not rewarding for me. And so, like, pretty much, you know, for 30 years or whatever it's been, I've just keep coming back over and over and over to relief printmaking, to woodcuts. So I have to ask you, where did the name Sean Star Wars get started? (laughs) Well, you know, my uh, my birth name is Sean Stewart. I try not to use that very much, but it's not a secret. But um, even before I was involved in art other than just drawing on my skateboards, um, I was developing a pretty respectable collection of Star Wars toys and other paraphernalia. And just being kind of a smartass, you know, you go to the antique store and uh, you know, you're looking for something, but you don't have a lot of time because I was actually looking for these things with my cousin who also is a Star Wars collector. So if there's something there that you want, whoever sees it first gets to buy it. You know, so you're scanning all the tables looking for something juicy, you know, and then you ask somebody, hey, do you have any Star Wars? And the guy comes back with some Spock ears or something. And you're like, I said, Sean, Star Wars, Star Wars. You're talking to Sean, Star Wars. So just being stupid. Yeah. <laughs> so I know that you um, are the father of five children. So um, do they ever get asked if their last name is Star Wars? They do. We have a rule, which is as soon as you can draw R2-D2, you can choose to be Star Wars or Stewart. Oh, I so like that. So they can that all do rule. it now. So. 
Oh, fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Radio. Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Radio. Each week on the Arts Hour, representatives from the Mississippi Arts Commission speak with different creatives across Mississippi. Today I have two guests in the studio, Sean Star Wars and Ann Campbell. So before the break, we were talking a little bit about um, how you guys grew up and how you have been inspired by your art um, to now, and I'd like to know a little bit more about your art itself. Um, so, Anne, we'll start with you. How would you describe for people the kind of art that you do? It's funky. It's different. Um, I take something, nothing, and make something out of it um, for something that was not intended to be in the first place. Um, a lot of artists, I think, make something from nothing. And so I look at things and I'll look at them and I'll hold them in my hand. Uh, For example, example, I had a a top, one of those pretty carved tops of a a fence post and I kept looking at it, holding it upright, and then I dropped it. And then it turned around and I looked at it the different way with the point at the bottom and I'm like, oh, that's an owl. So it's, it's more of just looking, like if you look at a coffee pot, uh, the old fashioned uh, kind that my parents used. I doubt your parents did, but my parents <laughs> used the drip, the drip coffee pot. If you hold it and look at it like a coffee pot, it's just a coffee pot. But if you turn it upside down and then kind of cock the uh, the lid, you've got the the nozzle, the pour spout. Now that's a nose, perfect nose. And with the little the lid cocked open a little bit, it's a mouth. So you you just have to look at things in a different light, and that's kind of how I do it. It just I'll look at something or I'll see something that inspires me and then I'll go through my things and see what I can find to make that particular animal or person. I make angels and elves. Uh, I was in Maine one year and I saw these lobster buoys, the old lobster buoys hanging on the side of a barn and I bought a couple of them, didn't know what I was going to do with them. But I ended up adding legs and feet and I made elves out of them. So it sounds to me like sometimes you're inspired by the objects themselves. Yes. And sometimes you're inspired by the end product and then finding objects right. to create I'll come that. up with an idea and I'm like, I want to make a possum. And then I'll look for things that look like a possum to me. I would imagine that your studio is also full of all kinds of found objects that you are storing right. for future projects. <laughs> yes. I, uh, I always buy anything made out of wood that's unusual with an unusual shape or a, like a curly cue off of an old chest that that com- becomes like Elvis hair. Um, <laughs> I use that on a moon. And so we, like I did an Elvis moon and he has a, a, a swirly top knot like Elvis's hair would have been in the fifties. <laughs> so that's kind of how I look at things. It's just, that's something I don't know what it is yet, but it's going to tell me and I'll know someday what it's going to be. And I would, I would also guess that your friends then end up, seeing things as well that they think might be inspiring to you and give you those items. Is that correct? Well, occasionally I will get, a, I'll come to the studio and there's a box of stuff <laughs> on, at the door that I don't know who left it there. I don't know where it came from. And it's stuff that folks think I can use. It's not always something I can use, <laughs> but it's for the most part, it's uh-huh. things I can, I can use at a later date. I may not have an idea instantly, but it'll come to me later. So you mentioned um, that you're not above a dumpster dive. No. And antique stores. Where? What are the other places where you tend to find these objects that inspire you? Flea markets. Um, 
I will sometimes ride down a, a, in a new subdivision and look at the, you know, because I, like, I hate for wood to go to waste, and most of the times they just burn it or throw it in a dumpster. So I will go get some two-by-fours or something just for raw materials because I do sometimes need just a straight piece of, of wood. I don't Not everything is something, uh, <laughs> but I might cut it out to be. Um, but one inspiration I had was um, Old House Depot, had a lot of foundry patterns from old Harper's Foundry, which was here in Jackson many, many years ago. And uh, they got a lot of the foundry patterns. And my father used those foundry patterns as well. And so I would use the smaller ones for bodies for angels or just whatever struck my fancy. So as a visual artist myself, this might be a little technical, but I, I can't. I can't wait to ask you um, how you hang these objects. You know, what I am what I know about your work and what I'm imagining about some of your work that I haven't seen is that hanging in a traditional, you know, gallery space or exhibit um, is could be tricky. Is there a, a, you know, tip or trick or... <laughs> well, mostly what I've done are uh, freestanding pieces, uh -huh. a, a three-dimensional walk all the way around it piece. I've just started with this show making more wall hangings and um, it's just some of them won't always lay flat but uh, <laughs> I, I usually tell people that you may have to screw it onto your wall when you get home because it's not I do put a wire on the back but that's not a guarantee it's going to hang pretty <laughs> so I suggest that they screw it to mm -hmm. wherever they're going to put it be on creative the wall. in a whole, a whole right. other aspect right so tell me about some of your favorite pieces that you maybe you've worked on recently or maybe some of the pieces you've worked on in the past that really just stick out in your mind? Well, my favorite piece is the very first piece I made, which I described earlier, and I call it a rolling rover, which is my dog made out of a roller skate. And I probably made about 350 of those and have sold every one of them. Um, so that, of course, that's my favorite piece because <laughs> it sells. Uh, though I, I probably saturated the market with them here in Jackson. And then uh, my latest piece that I uh, made was for this show, and it's the devil that's on the postcard. And the um, that his horns are part of an old crutch, the top part of the crutch that goes underneath your arm. So that made perfect horns. And then the rest is just a board. And I had these skull beads in my stash. And I thought, well, those would make cool teeth. <laughs> So their skull, his teeth are skulls, and of course I painted one of them gold. <laughs> and it, it, sometimes it's just something that just, I'll, I'm usually laughing while I'm making stuff because it's it's uh, it's very rewarding and it satisfying to 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 laugh at your work. I mean, I'm when people come and tell me, oh, your work is so beautiful, and I'll go, it's a lot of things, but beautiful, it's not. <laughs> I don't mind you calling my work cute or awesome. Are different. Uh, I like that. I welcome that. It sounds like you, um, from what I'm imagining, that you maybe enjoy the process just as much. The, oh, I the do. Putting together. It's a very joyful feeling to be able to create, and then while in the process of creating, it's making me happy, mm -hmm. and and I enjoy making other people happy when they look at my work. It's it's so fun to, if I do a show to see people walk by and they just smile. I don't care if they come in my booth. Right. Uh, because you're bringing joy to I'm people bringing joy in a whimsical world. way. Yeah. <laughs> joy to the world. Um, so tell me a little bit about um, the kind of tools that you use to create these 
Well, I have I use a drill press, a chop saw, a, a jigsaw. I also have a uh, band saw, mm-hmm. and then of course just regular screw sc- screwdrivers and drills. Mm-hmm. Everything is connected using screws. And then um, you recently took a class at Aramont. Yes, is that right? And then what was that class? That was, uh, and I forgot forget the exact name of it, but I had always had this vision of making my work interactive, kinetic. So I took a class in making kinetic sculpture. And and, and what does kinetic mean for just like those if you, who aren't familiar? Do you remember the at the old Ag Museum, the little you put the coin in and the little people would move around, the dog's tail would wag and uh, so it's a like for mine for example, if you turned a crank I made a whale, and his um, his spout would go up and down and turn, and then his tail would turn. So, so it's like um, activating them right. like with movable parts. Right. And... Made it interactive. Um, it didn't work out. I mean, I did love doing it, but then I thought, that's an awful lot of work to put into something to to not be able to get a lot of money. <laughs> so it's because it, it takes time to make the little cog. You had to make cogs. You had to make the handle that turns. You had to make it where it would move up and down. So I thoroughly enjoyed doing it, but I'll probably never make them. I might make a piece because there are a couple stuck in the back of my head that sure, I have but, ideas for. But, but you've learned. But I've at least learned. you've learned how, and you can decide whether you and incorporate that. The or teacher not. also taught us uh, how to make bandsaw boxes, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Tell me more about that. What's you take that? a solid block of wood, and you cut the sides off, and then you cut. Um, once you've cut two sides, then you cut like a square out of the box. So you glue the sides back on, and when you get through, you can't tell where it's ever been cut. It's, it's, it looks oh, like wow. it's. It looks like you carved out the the hole for the box and the lids. And she made taught us how to make these awesome hinges. And then I broke my bandsaw. So. <laughs> well, part for the course. I, I, I broke it trying to make a bandsaw box, but I will get back to that. Well, um, so both of you work a lot in wood um, and found objects. You guys have, have quite a, a lot in common for doing <laughs> what some might say is very different work. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Sean, let's talk first about your work in printmaking. So, again, for those of... Um, our listeners who aren't familiar with that. Can you kind of describe what printmaking is and then tell us a little bit about more of the work you've done in printmaking specifically? Um, Well, relief printmaking is essentially like making a rubber stamp. You know, everybody should have kind of familiarity with that. Um, I put a drawing on a piece of wood, usually with Sharpie, and then I just carve away the parts that I don't want to get ink with my chisels and gouges. And then I roll ink out onto it and put paper or wood or fabric down onto the block and crank it through my etching press and make a impression, you know, make a print. And so the nice thing about printmaking is that it lends itself to multiples. So, you know, if I want to make a hundred of the same thing, I can. That's called an addition. You know, you have some controls to that. I'm usually not that super interested in additioning, so I might make multiples but each one's a little bit different or sometimes a lot different uh i just the additioning part really kind of bores me and so you know the other upside to not spending a lot of time additioning is that i get to make much more work you know many more original pieces because i just i want to blast out the next one 
instead of printing a hundred of that particular one. You know, so it's just kind of a just a decision to make in the studio as to how much time I want to spend doing the stuff that's not fun versus <laughs> fun. <laughs> sure. Well, I remember in art school the, the the adage of unity with variety, right? That's right. what I think it's, of when I hear you say yeah, that similar things, but there's variety within as well. So, do you do in that in that case? Do you do a lot of series work? Um, I usually am thinking in terms of series. You know, usually if um, when I start something, I'm thinking I can get five or six images that'll all tie together based on this. So I kind of tell myself little stories or sometimes I'll write them down and create these narratives that, you know, go from point A to point Z. But a lot of times I stop at B and just move on to the next one. And it's uh -huh. like, oh, I think I've told enough of this story with this one image. But... Um, but a lot of times I will kind of work out a series. Um, you know, sometimes they're tied together just by the proximity of when I made them. And sometimes it's the color that kind of ties them together. Sometimes, you know, not really these days looking for found objects, but I'm always on the search for found imagery, you know, for just mm -hmm. things that I can respond to. Uh, and so sometimes I'll find just a real rich treasure trove of images that kind of lend themselves to multiple uh, woodcuts, you know, instead of sometimes like, oh, this would be cool for one thing, you know, let me just hammer that out and then move on. But sometimes it's a brand new thing to me that I had no prior knowledge about. And so I get really excited about those things and kind of want to dig a little bit deeper. So um, I'm not super familiar with printmaking. So when I'm imagining it, I'm thinking about how you are having to work a lot with negative space. Is that is that a good interpretation? Yeah, certainly. You know, the, the, the thing is that the way that I usually work, I end up probably carving away. I mean, especially for the black and white part of an image, which is called the key block. For that key block, I've probably cut away 85 or 90 percent of the surface of the wood and left just an outline of what is eventually going to get other blocks of color information. So... I'm dealing with a lot. I mean, I'm always thinking about negative space, but usually I have the benefit of color that's going to go, that's going to drop into places. The texture of all the different mark making is something that some people in printmaking give a lot of attention to. I kind of just assume that it'll take care of itself, so I'm just attacking the wood. I'll get some variety with the different tools that I use, but but I don't spend a lot of time thinking about making my cuts serve a very specific other purpose. You know, I just want to get in there and have a good time and just get kind of aggressive with it. And it just, in the end, I kind of rely on the process to solve all my problems for me. So um, before we go to our musical break, you are uh, known for your love of Mountain Dew. <laughs> so um, just tell, tell, tell our listeners a little bit about um, your story there. Yeah, well, that's a long story, but it, it comes down to it's just such a delicious drink with so much good caffeine in it. I love the artwork, <laughs> the original hillbilly-based artwork with the hillbilly and his rifle pointed at a revenue or in the little outhouse and the pig, all that stuff that I just kind of love. Um, but then also when they changed the graphics in the late 70s all through the 80s, they had kind of one specific word mark. I just love the what happens with the color with the green mountain and the red dew and you have so many of those um, you get what's called color discord when the green and the red are reacting to one another 
And if they're close enough, they actually create yellow where it's not there. It's kind of just this optical thing. And I love it. It's just creating color out of nothing. And so I really respond to just what's happening with color. And so it's a great logo for that. So on top of how much I love it, I love seeing the logo now is horrible. I can't stand to look at it. You know, <laughs> it doesn't do any of the things that I like in terms of color. Um, but, you know, I'm able to work some of my love of Mountain Dew into some of my imagery. It's the it's actually the reason why I went to LSU for grad school was in pursuit of this bilingual uh, 1960s era bottle, French on one side, English on the other. Like a fool, I thought the only place I could come from is like Cajun speak in Louisiana. <laughs> Never heard of Canada. <laughs> so, but uh, but that's why I went to grad school was to find one of those bottles. Wow. Well, you're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Radio. I'm Melody Moody Thordis with the Mississippi Arts Commission. Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Radio. Each week on the Arts Hour, representatives from the Mississippi Arts Commission speak with different creative people living in Mississippi. Today I'm speaking with two Arts Commission Visual Art Fellowship winners, Ann Campbell and Sean Star Wars. So, Sean, before the break, um, we were talking about your experience in printmaking. So I noticed um, that you're part of something called the Outlaw Printmakers. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I wasn't really sure what that was. Well, that's, um, you know, there's really most people acknowledge that the, like, the greatest relief printmaker alive is a guy named Tom Huck. Uh, When I learned about him while I was still in grad school, um, he was inspirational enough to me that I decided to stick it out because I wasn't really super happy with my experience down there. And I was like, well, if he's if he's getting stuff done, there might be an audience for me to do what I want to do, too. So uh, so he's kind of important to me. And then uh, he actually discovered some of the work that I was doing at this conference and invited me to be a part of some projects that he was working on. And that that really meant a lot to me. Um, And that was still like that was like maybe 1998. Right around the year 2000 is when another artist named Tony Fitzpatrick kind of told uh, told Huck that, yeah, you guys are just a bunch of outlaws that kind of stuck. And so then there's been more of a formal grouping of the outlaw printmakers since about that time. And most of us in that group are all people that have a lot of experience in printmaking. Most of us are not full-time at universities. At the time, I mean, Huck was working at, uh, at Washington University in St. Louis. But there's a yeah, I always try to not step on people's toes, but there's kind of a disconnect between what happens when you're teaching at a university in terms of the work that you're generating and maybe the uh, just maybe how prolific you are um, and what you're d- making the work for, what it's supposed to accomplish uh, when you have that safety of of that tenure track position, you know, which in fairness is something that I'd been working towards for a long time, but never. You know, I mean, I've taught at universities uh, plenty, but never tenured. And it's just kind of a different thing. And so most of us in that group are people that, like, have found some level of success without relying on what a university offers you in, in terms of security and employment. Um, and then, you know, we all kind of make work that's, you know, maybe on one side of edgy or whatever, you know, sometimes it's a little more confrontational or whatever. Um, and it usually, I mean, initially we were people that didn't have the benefit of the internet to connect with one another. 
And so, like, that initial grouping was, was pretty special. Now that we have the Internet, um, you know, we are, we're privy to so much more exciting work that's happening all over the world. But at the time, we felt like we really had found our kindred spirit, you know, and we knew that there weren't many of us out there. And so, like, we kind of bonded on that level, too. And, um, and you know, when you get fired for the artwork that you're making, you know, then you can really say you've earned your outlaw you really know. <laughs> your outlaw card so. well it's definitely um interesting to reflect back upon how the internet kind of changed the mm-hmm. way that that artists not only learn about how to do their work better but get to you know see other people doing things in a in a different way i know growing up you know like you said i mean my dad read a different encyclopedia every night, you know, just to, <laughs> just to learn things. Yeah. And you, you, you know, you're making something creative, but I would imagine it would have been a completely different experience, you know, with this community. Right. Yeah. You know, and then, you know, by, you know, where I'm at in Laurel, I'm relatively isolated. You know, I don't, you know, most of the other guys in outlaws, there's a few women too, but I'd still say guys, uh, but, um, you know, they're usually in big cities or whatever. And so there's – for me, there's always been this – if I'm going to stay on the level of these other guys that I – these other printmakers that I respect so much, you know, like Tom Huck, from the minute I knew him, his work was in the Whitney Museum, you know. And yeah. so, like, to stay at that level, you know, and I'm just down here in Laurel trying to stay alive, <laughs> you know. And so, like, I'm always kind of pushing myself to have some ideas, you know, to do something that's kind of worthy of – of that outlaw status. Right. And, and many years, nothing happens. <laughs> so that's prompted me to do other stuff and to push myself harder so that there aren't any down years. There aren't any years where I can't say I really squeezed everything there was out of that year in terms of creativity. Right. And hopefully you continue to be inspired and encouraged, you know, by that community as well. Absolutely. Um, so earlier um, we talked a little bit about, the difference between printmaking and woodcutting. Mm-hmm. So can you tell our listeners a little bit more about what woodcutting is, at least as you define right. it? Right, sure. You know, when um, you know when I'm drawing on my wood and then carving it out with all of those various chisels and gouges, that's to make something that's traditionally referred to as a woodcut, which is one type of relief printmaking, like lino cut, um, those are really the two main ones, you know, as opposed to lithography or etching or screen printing or whatever else is out there that I'm forgetting. Um, you know, there's that term wood carving or woodworking, which refers to probably a lot of different things that might use the same exact tools that I use. But usually it's not in order to make a, repro- a, a, a second or multiple impression of something. It's usually an end to itself. And even for myself, sometimes... I'll carve out bigger wood blocks than will fit on my press, and then I kind of um, I'll paint them and ink them up with my uh, with my ink rollers and let those be, you know I call those wood carvings, you know those are just standalone pieces that I'm never going to print, so there's not going to be multiples of those. You're listening to MPB Think Radio. This is the Mississippi Arts Hour, and I'm your host Melody Moody Thordis, talking with Mississippi artists Sean Star Wars and Ann Campbell. Um, so when you, when you describe 
when I think of printmaking, mm-hmm. the way you're describing it, I'm thinking of multiple, you're putting ink on there, and then you're making multiples. Mm-hmm. So would you say that woodcuts, like a person would buy the actual wood usually, as the product? Right. Usually not. Usually you would buy a print from that. And okay. so, you know, a, a, I mean, I don't think I've ever printed more than 100 of one of my wood blocks. Mm-hmm. Um but you probably could squeeze two or three hundred out of that. Um, but whatever I'm going to get for a given print, in, you know, financially, whatever I'm going to get monetarily, um, I'm much likelier to get that one piece at a time times a hundred versus what I would have to charge for that one wood carving. Mm. You know, so that would, you know, I might make, ultimately I might get $10,000 for all of those prints, but piece itself is probably not a $10,000 piece if you just wanted to buy the piece of wood. It probably would say $500 to you, you know? And so, like, I just get much more out of it if I make them as prints and eventually sell through that way. Right. That makes a lot of sense, I think, to the consumer as well, because then they're able to buy the thing that they love at a lower price point. You're still able as an artist (laughs) to make a living. Exactly. You know, and the thing is, that there's nothing really more rewarding. Because what you're making, when you're making art, you're ostensibly trying to connect with somebody. And you make that connection where, oh, I like it. And then a stronger connection where, oh, I like it. I'd like to live with it. Mm-hmm. And then stronger still when like, well, I've done my job for X number of hours so that I can have this thing that you've made. And they part with their money. That's a, that's a pretty special transaction, you know. And to think that they're going to see that thing that you made mm-hmm. for the rest of their life or for a long portion of their life that they're welcoming you into their household is pretty special. And so to be able to do that at a much more accessible price, Mm -hmm. you know, it's nice to make money, but it's also really nice to know that you're making connections with with people on that level. So, mm-hmm. and I would I would guess that you have a lot of those experiences as well that people that see your pieces have such a emotional or fun or connection like Sean said they they like it but then they want it you know they right. want they want to have it <laughs> um, that's very rewarding um and for and I keep parking back on my roller skates but I've had so many people my age who and the roller skates I'm talking about are the ones that uh 70 and 60 year old folks wore as children the kind <laughs> that you know you hook onto your feet uh, they're not shoes that you wore. They go over, you know, you put them on with your shoes. And I've had so many people, oh, I remember those. I had a pair of those. And uh, it just brings back a lot of happy memories for folks. Or um, just a, I had a piece that I called it the dark side of the moon. And my studio mate, Ellen Langford, brought in her dog. And I had this Electrolux uh, vacuum cleaner brush. And I don't know how Ollie did it because it was made out of metal and I could not bend it. But he bent it where it made this. And it was like a horsehair. It was one of the Electrolux things from the 50s and 60s. So it was an old piece and had this beautiful horsehair. And it was the perfect mustache for my dark side of the moon, which, by the way, was a uh, a triptych. And I called it He's Going Through a Phase was the name of the triptych. Then it was the dark side of the moon. There was um, Good Night Moon, which was the Elvis. And then also, um, he's full of himself. So it was like a full moon, a quarter moon, and the dark side of the moon. So it was a triptych that I made. And I would have loved to have sold it together, but 
sold each piece individually because each piece spoke to a different person, even though they looked great together, but they also <laughs> looked great on their own. And it was very uh, gratifying because this couple came by at Chimneyville and he saw the piece and he loved it. And uh, then they, they left and they came back and she came back later without him and said, I want that for him, put it up. So I put it up. And he didn't know about it. Well, the next day, he came back to buy it. And I had to tell him that it was gone. <laughs> and uh, But I would have loved to have been there that morning when she gave it to him because he <laughs> thought he'd lost it. But, it, you know, it just really spoke to them, and they really wanted it. And I'm glad that she wanted to buy it for him, too. <laughs> well, you guys have a show together coming up called mm -hmm. Creatures Among Us at the Mississippi Library Commission. Can you tell people quickly um, where they can find more of your art sean yeah um seanstarwars.com it pretty much has everything perfect and is there a place where uh, the craft mississippi craft center okay so attic gallery in vicksburg uh -huh. um coastal magpie and ocean springs material things artisan market in woodstock illinois and um i think that's it for now well no there's uh Wild Oats and Billy Goats in Decatur, Georgia. So I'm in <laughs> and, different galleries. And wild Oats and Billy Goats. Well, thanks for listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour. And be sure to check out Creatures Among Us, a joint show from my guests at the Mississippi Library Commission. The show will be on public display during open hours, 8 to 5, and running until November 2nd. If you missed part of this interview or want to listen again, go to mpbonline.org backslash Mississippi Arts Hour. And tune in each week for the Arts Hour, a co-production of MPB Radio and the Mississippi Arts Commission.